0: What a day. I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, and I'm going to take my coat off. Ephesians chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 15 through 23 as our main passage. We'll have a couple of other passages as well we're going to take a look at. Ephesians 1, starting with verse 15. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints. Notice the comma there. Um, This is the longest run-on sentence in the entire Bible. Paul was noted for this. It defeats all grammatical structure, but it's Paul. So what do we do? For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, Remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the work of his great might May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Pastor Scott has been preparing us for the last two weeks as he did two messages on the prelude to the cross. Uh, Two weeks ago, he taught us about the mercy of God. That came out of the first half of John chapter 11. And he challenged us to do more than believe things about Jesus Christ, more than to just believe what he did, but to embrace and fully believe that Jesus is exactly who he said he was. So last week we heard that if we believe uh, he is who he says he is, that we can see God's glory. This is a pretty incredible promise. That was from the second half of John chapter 11, and uh, that goes right out to believers. So in light of the promise of glory, we, you know, he took a close look at death for a believer. Uh, And while death can be grievous to those who are left behind, death for a believer is a step towards glory. It's a step uh, towards perfection. It's a step into heaven. So this morning I want to show you how we can lay hold of all this, what we can do to what they call appropriate this. And, And I also want to show you what seals it up for you. We're going to look at the resurrection of Christ and what that means to us and That's our question for the morning, is what does the resurrection mean to me? We all know what the resurrection is, but how does it it apply to our lives? How do we walk out and walk in the resurrection? Now, uh, to answer the question, we're going to take a look at three inimitable truths about the resurrection before we leave today. I promise to have you out of here by 3 (laughs) o'clock. Because I have... I have not only points this morning, I have subpoints, uh, you know. And when you see me looking at the clock, you know what it means when a pastor looks at the clock. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> <laughs> so the first truth that we're going to see is in our passage. The others are going to flow from that. Uh, all three taken together, all three truths will reveal, hopefully help you understand what the resurrection means to you. Here they are. Three truths about the resurrection. Number one, it was a demonstration of God's power. Now, we're going to spend some time on that one because it's the baseline for everything else. Number two, it confirmed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. We know that, but we're going to prove it. Number three, it is central to our faith. The centrality of the resurrection is absolutely crucial uh, to Our faith and and to faith. We'll explain that in just a little bit. So let's get started with our first truth. The resurrection was a demonstration of God's power. Now Paul begins Ephesians with a short greeting, then jumps right into the blessings that the Ephesian church can have in Jesus Christ. And uh, we need to keep in mind as we go through this that the blessings on the Ephesian church are also the blessings on the church today. In verse 3, he says that we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Now, when I hear that, it makes me wonder why I would, I would covet anything in this world. It makes me wonder why I would go after anything the world would have to offer when I have already been given all of these spiritual blessings in heaven. And so Paul kind of hits him with that, and that's just the opening comment, He starts out with, well, by the way, you have all of the blessings of heaven in you. So he goes on to say that believers receive this blessing because they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And that we who are in union with Christ in Christ have been predestined to adoption uh, as God's sons and daughters according to the purpose of God's will. Now all that happens in verse four and five. We are united with Christ, and because of our union with Christ, we are able to receive all the blessings of heaven. Then we hear that God's grace has been lavished upon us. It's a luxurious word here, and that the plan all along, God's plan all along was to lavish his grace upon us uh, and to unite us as believers in Christ. Verse 11 tells us that because of all this, we have an inheritance because we were predestined. There's that word again. I'll let you people that are engaged in Romans downstairs uh, work through that. Uh, so that we, be, we are predestined because we have this inheritance so that we are the first to hope in Christ in whom is the truth and the gospel, the truth of the gospel, and in whom we are sealed. Now the word for sealed here means made secure we're made secure in our inheritance by the holy spirit until we we acquire possession of it now acquiring possession means until that time that we step into glory until the time we're glorified and it's a guarantee it's a guarantee that if we're in christ if we're believers we will be glorified paul lays all these astounding promises on the Ephesian church and and uh, all these guarantees, just so that he can start verse fifteen. He's just getting wound up. He's he's just kind of laying the foundation. So he wants to start verse fifteen for for this reason. Now let me paraphrase this for you. As paraphrase, uh, he says to the Ephesians, "We've had our socks blessed off." We've had more blessings than we could ever earn, more than we could ever ask for. We've been redeemed. We've been sealed. We, and we have received a guarantee. And for this reason, because I know that you Ephesians have been faithful, I give thanks and pray for you. Huh. Paul details the riches of God's blessing, knows that he shares them with the Ephesians church, knows that the Ephesian church is aware that they share in these blessings. And that leads to praise and prayer flowing out of Paul. That's got to be a blessing in the church of, of Ephesus, to know that Paul is praying for you. But it's an even greater blessing is in store for them. This, this, again, this is just the beginning, because Paul begins to delineate his prayer. He begins to tell them what he's praying about. Has anybody ever walked up to you and said, I've been praying for you? You know, that's a blessing, amen? That's a good thing. Has anybody ever walked up and said, I've been praying to you, for you for these specific reasons. I want to bless you with the prayers I've been praying. Now, that's when things start getting intense. And, yeah, and, and you realize that not only has God put you on the heart of that person, but he's put you on the heart of that person with some specificity. Uh, So Paul says, I'm going to tell you what I'm praying for for you for. In verse 17, he asks that God give them the spirit of wisdom and that God give them the revelation in the knowledge of him. Listen to that. The spirit of wisdom and the revelation in the knowledge of him. Of all the things Paul could pray, of everything he could pray for these Ephesians, the very first thing that he prayed for them is not health, it's not wealth, it's not worldly goods, it's not to have a good life, it is for them to have to have the knowledge of God. Paul knows that the knowledge of God will get them through whatever they need to get through. It's an incredible blessing. Verse 18 tells us that Paul prays it, listen to this, the eyes of their heart might be enlightened. You know, we all like that phrase, we all want the eyes of our heart open, but listen. Paul says he wants the eyes of their heart enlightened, and this is a grace-filled, glorious phrase. In particular, to the Jew, you know we have a uh, we have a, a kind of an idea of what we think the heart is. The Jew's idea of the heart was a little bit different than ours. To them, the heart was more than a conscience. It was more than the seat of where their feelings were. It was uh, it was the core. It was the center of their personality. It was the essence of an individual. It was very similar to the way the Jewish people look at names. They're not just labels. They embody the character and nature of the person. It was what made him, her, or her unique. The heart is what gave them their personality. It was the entirety, everything that goes on in the inner man, everything that's intangible about you and me, it would be the way the Jews see the heart. Paul Paul wants his prayer to reach deep into his spiritual children. He wants to dig deep in there, to touch them with their innermost being. He wants the Word of God uh, and the knowledge of God to to mold and shape their soul. And look at what Paul wants them to know, having been touched so profoundly by God. He wants them to know there, there are three blessings that Paul prays for them in this knowledge. He asks that they may know the hope The hope that God has called them for. Now, I don't know about you, but the way I see the world right now, we could use some hope. We could use some hope. The way I see my life right now, I could use some hope. Paul prays that hope upon the church. Paul's not asking for the type of feel-good hope that we see in movies and on TV. He's not looking for the triumph of the human spirit hope. This is not the hope that everything is going to turn out okay and it will turn out in my favor. It is the hope that an eternal God brings uh, for an eternal destiny. The hope for an eternal home in which the most glorious day of our life pales in comparison to what we will experience there. The promise that whatever we're going through today is temporary. Whatever we're going through today is temporary, and joy awaits us in his presence. Paul is praying for that type of hope, type of hope that has an impact on not just your temporal life, but your eternal life. He prays that they may know what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And we've got to follow Paul here. He prays that their hearts will be enlightened. That they begin to experience the eternal hope they've received in being called by God. And once they have that, they will begin to know the riches of His glorious inheritance. Now, this means that they will begin to understand and experience what it means to be sons and daughters of the living God. Vessels of His mercy, mercy and grace. Messengers of His truth. Messengers of His gospel. Paul prays that that will occur in the saints. It's a little phrase. It would be easy to overlook. It looks like a minor phrase, but it is major. It is a collective expression. Paul is referring to the church. He's praying this blessing on the church, that the church will be an expression of hope and salvation, Not just that it would experience those two things, but that it would flow into and out of the church, out of the saints, out of God's children, out of the body of Christ, out of the church. Now Paul's getting into some pretty heady stuff. He's getting in deep here. Paul's praying the church, not just the individuals, but as the body of Christ be blessed in a mighty way. And I know in the culture we're in, uh, we're in a consumerist culture, uh, there are a lot of people that, that look around and go, what's in it for, to, for me today? Uh, we don't really look at ourselves as collectives, but listen to what Paul just did. He prays blessing down upon the body of, char- of Christ, down upon the church. And for those people that are individual members of the church, they automatically receive the blessing. The blessing falls on the church and because it falls on the church it falls on you and me. Paul wants the church to experience and proclaim the riches of his glorious inheritance. He wants them to proclaim their sonship. He wants them to shout out their relationship with God and talk about their guarantee of an eternal home in paradise. And because we're in the church, he wants you and me to do that as well. Here's the third blessing Paul prays for them. It's in verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might? Now, if if you take a look at this in Greek, if you take a look at a couple of different translations, you'll see that Paul is struggling to find superlatives here. He's struggling to find the proper language to express the awesomeness of what's going on. Here in in the ESV, uh, it is immeasurably great. God's power is immeasurably great. King James translates this as the exceeding greatness of God's power. The NIV calls it incomparably great. The idea that is so hard to translate and help us to understand is that God's power is beyond our imagination. It's greater than we can imagine. And it is extended toward God's great power, this power that is so hard to imagine, so hard to comprehend, is extended toward His church, toward us, toward you and me, toward believers. And the power is not some abstract, feel-good, swooning, goose-pumpy, Paint a smiley face on everything, feeling the power is manifested and tangibly realized in the working of his great might. Now we need to look at this a little closer too, because it means that the world can see the world can see the handiwork of God. The handiwork of God is evident to the world. The world can see the testimony of his presence. Where? In the church, in you and me. His power is in the church, in you and me. And it's there as a witness to the world of how great a God He is. What is that power? It's the power to bring hope the power to bring revelation of the truth and revelation of the gospel, the power to change lives, to alter hearts, the the power to, to regenerate, the power to bring about a rebirth, the power to take the mess that we make of all of our lives and breathe new life into them, the power to give us a hope, a new home, and a new identity in Christ. And all this happens in the church and in the lives of the members of the church. We need to keep that in mind. Paul's third request is that they know, that they have intimate knowledge of this power of God, and that the power was most significantly displayed, as we see in verse 20, in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the ultimate manifestation, the ultimate tangible manifestation of the power of God and the resurrection of Christ when God brought him out of the grave, seated him in heaven on his right side. This is the power of God. This power was demonstrated in raising Christ from the dead so that the world will know, listen, not just so that the world will know that Jesus raised from the dead, but just so that the world will know that God can resurrect That God does resurrect, that God has authority over death, and that God can pull someone out of the filth of this earth and bring them into heaven and seat them in the glory. Now, Jesus not only ascended into heaven, but as we see in verse 21 and 22, uh, they tell us that he sits there above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above all names and above all any name ever named, every name that was ever named and any name that will ever be named. And God put all things under his feet and made him the head of the church. Now, we know that. We know that Jesus is the head of the church. But verse 22, we see that he's also the head of all things to the church. That's a little bit of an awkward phrase. What does that mean? What does it mean he's head of all things to the church? The easy way to understand what Paul's saying, uh, aside from difficulties of translation, would be that Christ is the head of all things and that all things are for the church. Christ is head over everything and everything's there for the church. In other words, the church has been given a head who is head over all things. This is a promise. This is a promise of protection and preservation for the church, and I think it may be an important one for us to hear today. So every day I get an email, I see something on Facebook, something in the news about the Bible's in trouble, they're going to take our Bibles from us, they're going to take our religious freedom from us, we, we got to do something, the church is going to die, young people are leaving, old people are leaving, somebody needs to do something, the church isn't going to exist in 20 years. That's garbage. Garbage! All you got to do is read Revelation. And you see that the church is there, Christ is the head and has authority over all things. Listen. And the church is his body, so the church has authority and power over anything that would ever come against it. Let me tell you something. No legislation, no terrorist group, no special interest group, no no one in Washington, no one in the Mideast, no world power, no power in hell, no sin, no stumble, no guilt, no accusation, nothing will ever overcome the church because we're in the church that means that nothing will overcome you and me. Nothing will rob us of our inheritance. Nothing will deny us our home in heaven. That's the power of the resurrection. We've seen the power of God. Let's look at this power of the resurrection. It's our first truth for the day. I told you it's going to take a while. I, I wanted to take my time establishing this because the other two truths depend on it totally. It, they depend on us understanding this, this first, most vital truth, the power of the resurrection. The resurrection reveals the power of God, and everything flows from that. All God's promises, all God's blessings, our new lives, our new hearts, our eternal security... We can believe in and appropriate all these things because we see God's power to deliver on those promises in the resurrection of Christ, his only son. Second truth revealed in the resurrection is that it confirms that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now, we know that. We know that. But we're going to prove it by using the scriptures. It'd be easy to claim it just by reading our passage in Ephesians, but for the sake of leaving no doubt, I want you to turn back to the Gospel of John, chapter 20, where Scott was. We're going to be looking at verses 30 and 31. It's the end of the book of, of John. After detailing the life and ministry of Jesus Christ and, and showing us some pretty amazing things, John ends his gospel with this. John 20, 30, 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John says, everything I've written in this book are here to help people believe that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, that certainly affirms his sonship. It's very clear. John's entire gospel was written to prove that. It's a good point, but it doesn't really link Jesus to the resurrection. Um, So Paul does. Paul does. If we turn to Romans chapter 1, a couple books back, starting with verse 1. So we see his sonship affirmed. And in Romans chapter 1, starting with verse 1, Paul says this, I, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures, concerning his Son, who was descended from David according to the flesh, and was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus Christ, our Lord. It doesn't take long to parse this out see that Jesus was declared the Son of God in power. Now, what this means is that Jesus was exhibiting the power of God. And it was done according to the spirit of holiness. Now, the spirit of holiness is an idiom. It's a phrase uh, that to the Jews would mean the Holy Spirit. So what we have here is the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit making a declaration about Jesus Christ. Working together to make a declaration. And the declaration, listen to this, the declaration isn't a proclamation. The declaration is made in and through the resurrection. The resurrection is God's declaration of Jesus Christ being his Son. It is the sign of Of all sign, loved ones. It's the affirmation that Jesus was exactly who he said he was. God seals that declaration with the resurrection. The resurrection proves that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. Let's take a look at our third truth for the morning. The resurrection is central to our faith. This would be known as the centrality of the resurrection. As a matter of fact, the resurrection is the basis for four foundational elements of Christianity. Our truth, our third truth has four elements. Number one, it is the basis of faith. Listen to the phrasing carefully. It is the basis of faith. It's the basis of our faith, but it's the basis of all faith. Without the resurrection, we have nothing tangible to base our faith upon. We've got feelings and we've got notion. Paul says as much in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 14 to 19. You don't have to turn there. Listen to this. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are, not even, found to be, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true, then the dead are not raised. If the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then also, those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Paul says if Christ wasn't raised from the dead, we have nothing if our only hope is what we can see and touch in front of us here, we have no faith at all. If there's no resurrection, we have nothing to stand on. The resurrection is the bedrock foundation of our faith, but it is the basis for all faith. Faith in that what God says is true. Everything starts, everything starts, brothers and sisters, with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The essence of this is present in in one of the most famous books passages in the Bible, short passage, Romans 9, uh, Romans 10, 9 and 10, listen, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. We can only make that confession by faith. And our faith is based on the resurrection. The resurrection is a starting point It's the foundation of saving faith. But it's also the basis for our justification. Now, what is justification? It's the declaration of God of our reconciliation to him. Declaration of God of of our innocence. Not that we are innocent, but God declares we are. This doctrine doesn't get much play in the church today. It's kind of complicated. Um, But it is primary to the Christian faith. Let me tell you why unless we are justified to God, unless we are reconciled to him, unless we are declared innocent, we can't have a relationship with him. We can't have intimate communion with him. The reason we can't is because he's holy and we're not. The reason we can't is because he's pure and we're not. The reason we can't is because he's perfect and we're not. The reason we can't is because God is undefiled. He is sinless. He hasn't been touched by the filth of the world, and we have. We've been infected by it. So something in us has to change. If, if reconciliation is going to take place, something has to change in us. It's not going to change in God because God is what? Unchanging. Something in us has to happen. And that for that reconciliation to take place, the something that happens is the cross. Those who believe that Jesus Christ is Savior, receive grace from god by virtue of his death in our place on the cross now the efficacy of that sacrifice is affirmed it's effective and affirmed by the resurrection allowing god to count jesus's perfection to us and declare us justified to him reconciled to him paul says this in romans it really is a theological masterpiece romans 4:23 but the words, I, I was, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord. We're talking about his sinlessness. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. A little later in Romans chapter 8, we hear this in 833. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? and Who is indeed interceding for us? God justifies, and Jesus intercedes for those who believe in him. Now, we heard what a blessing it would be to have Paul pray for you. How much greater blessing is it to know that Jesus Christ, if you're a believer in him, is in the throne room, the right hand of God, praying for you. All of it's proven. It's all true because of the resurrection. The resurrection is the basis for our justification. The resurrection is the basis for our hope. We learned about hope a little further, a little back. Let's go a little deeper. We we know about the hope uh, Christ brings. Now, the resurrection spurs us on to to grasp that hope to embrace it luke makes this clear in acts 24 14 but this i confess to you that according to the way which they call a sect i worship the god of our fathers believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets having a hope in god which these men themselves accept that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust so i always take pains To have a clear conscience toward both God and man. That's pretty incredible. Uh, Luke saying I take pains to have a clear conscience, I take pains to confess my sin, I take pains to make amends with those people that I've offended and those people that have offended me. Uh, I go before God and, and repent when I need to repent. So there's some good news in these verses but there's some bad news as well. If you're a believer, There's great news in here. It's fantastic. Our hope will be affirmed. We will be resurrected. And we are just. We are reconciled by God's decree so that at the resurrection of our bodies, we will enter into glory. Good news for all those who believe. We all want to go to glory. Amen? But there's a promise to those who don't believe as well. And this is where red flags start going up. Uh, Those who don't believe are going to be resurrected as well. The believers don't have a franchise on resurrection. Unbelievers will be resurrected too. They're not just going to go away. They're not going to continue to lie there in their graves. They will be resurrected, listen to this, to face God's judgment. Jesus takes on the wrath of God for all those who believe in him, for those who don't, They will have to endure the unbridled fury of God as he vents his wrath on those who rejected the only way for them to be saved, Jesus Christ. The resurrection becomes an ominous warning to those who are not Christians, but it's the basis of hope to a Christian. Number four, the resurrection is a basis for believers' bodily resurrection. The resurrection is a guarantee that uh, we will not stay dead and that our raising will not be spiritual it won't be it won't be conceptual it will be physical first corinthians 15:20 20 through 23 but in fact christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep for as by a man came death by a man came also the resurrection of the dead for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming those who belong to Christ. So what we hear is that we're going to be resurrected the same way Jesus Christ was resurrected. We're going to be raised from the grave the same way he was. Christ didn't come back as a ghost. He didn't come back as a concept. Mary held on to his feet, Thomas touched his wounds, he had breakfast, he had uh, dinner, he was in every way physically present. Now, there was something different about him. The physical body that he had was somehow different, we don't fully understand how. He had a glorified body, and again, we don't understand all the implications of that, but you know what? Whatever it is, we're going to get one too. We're going to have a glorified body. And once again, we turn back to Paul's Romans to lay hold of that promise, Romans eight eleven: If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The resurrection of Christ is the basis for our own physical resurrection. But this resurrection is the glory. So there's our three truths about the resurrection. The demonstration of God's power confirms that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and it's central to our faith. What does that mean? What does that mean to me? What does it mean to you? Well, I'll tell you something. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, if you came in here this morning and you have surrendered your life to the Lord, we're all in process on that, so it's okay. The resurrection means that all the blessings that Paul prayed on the Ephesian church are yours. They're your blessings as well, they're for all the children of God. All the promises, all the guarantees. How do we lay hold of that? Loved ones, all you have to do is walk in it. All you have to do is walk in it. All you have to do is embrace it. Now, how do we embrace it? We embrace it by keeping our eyes on Christ. We embrace it by keeping our eyes on eternity, not on what's right in front of us. We, 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 take it, we embrace it by keeping our heart filled with the word, keeping our heart filled with the gospel. We embrace it by making our highest desire to live and practice the gospel, not just to preach the gospel, but to live the gospel and have it come flowing from us, to share it, to ever exemplify the gospel have it coming out of our ears and our mouth and our heart in everything that we do, keeping our eyes on Christ, not on the situations around us, but on where we're going, because other people need to go there too. Other people need to hear that truth. It should come flowing from us. And if we can do that, if we can make that our highest desire to live the gospel, To be exemplars of it, then nothing will dissuade you. Nothing will distract you. Nothing will rob you of your peace. Nothing will rob you of your joy. The resurrection guarantees all of it is true, and the resurrection guarantees that it's yours. Now, if Jesus is not your Lord and Savior, don't wait. (laughs) Come to Him. Confess your sins. Repent. God will forgive you. God will give you a new life. God will give you a new heart. He will give you blessing. He'll give you hope. He'll give you a new home. And he'll give you the Holy Spirit to help you walk in all of that and encourage you along the way. If you don't, if you came in here this morning and you don't believe that, if you came in here and you're listening right now and you're going, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope, no, nope. I've got my own idea how this works. I've chosen to believe what I believe. I don't believe what it says here in the Bible. I believe what I want to believe. If you don't believe this, then you gird yourself. You gird yourself for his wrath. Jesus absorbed the wrath of God so that we wouldn't have to as believers. If you don't have Jesus, that wrath is going to absorb you. If you don't believe any of this, you're going to have you know what? If you don't believe any of this, you're going to have to figure out why from the moment you were born to this moment here, why every decision you made, every turn you made, every, every move you made, Landed you here in this room listening to this message. That's just God calling you. That's just the Holy Spirit saying, Listen up. I got you here. Now you got to listen. God is calling you. He has salvation in His hands, it can be yours. Don't wait until it's too late and you rise up out of your grave to face the most horrifying thing you will ever experience as an unbeliever. The judgment seat of God. And the resurrection, the resurrection proves it's true. It would be something if it was just two or three guys that were writing about it, but we have historians that have recorded the historicity of the resurrection. Josephus. A Jewish historian who hated the Jews wrote about the resurrection of Christ. So avoid that horror. Repent. Do it now. Because this is a time for celebration. You can join in on the celebration. We celebrate the most amazing miracle the world has ever seen. The resurrection. Christ coming out of the grave and saying, you know what? I'm only the first one. I'm bringing everybody who believes with me. For believers, it's a proof of their salvation. For believers, it's a foundation of their faith. For believers, it causes us to fall on our knees and say, thank you, God. I don't understand how I ever became worthy of this, but I'm just going to receive your grace as the beautiful, wonderful, unearned gift that it is amen let's pray father we thank you we praise you for your inimitable grace we praise you father that you've preserved the history of the resurrection, so that we could hear about it here today, that you have preserved Paul's prayer to the Ephesian church, so that we can know that it filters down to us as well. Lord, give us the strength by the presence and the power of your Holy Spirit to appropriate that, to walk in it, Father, to keep our eyes on you, to keep our eyes on eternity, and to revel in your glory and your greatness.